everybody. Let's try that one more time. Good evening, everybody. Much better. Let's all stand. We'll start off with a word of prayer. Brother Trent, would you uh, give us more prayer, please? Amen. Let's all take your hymn. Let's turn on hymn number 14. Hymn number 14.
seated. brother's anger bubbled. They threw him in a pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites. Ishmaelites, Ishmaelites. But Joseph did not quit. No, he did not quit. Cause he believed that you can't go wrong doing right. It's not so bad being know the world is wishing you would live a life that demands an explanation keeping the truth in your heart will always set you apart Jehovah will be in your fight cause you can't go wrong no you can't go wrong doing right Joseph, he was handsome and a pretty good CPA. He labored for his master till the wife stole his robe away. Potiphar threw him in jail for his wife told him a tale. No two years and no bail, everything hope was getting stale but while he was waiting oh Joseph took over the jail cause he believed that you can't go wrong doing right it's not so bad being good you know the world is wishing you would Live a life that demands an explanation. Keeping the truth in your heart will always set you apart. Jehovah will be in your fight. Cause you can't go wrong, no, you can't go wrong doing right. Now Joseph he could take a dream and tell you what it means. Pharaoh was a mighty king, but he didn't know beans about dreams. Seven years of plenty, seven without any. Who's gonna run the show for old Pharaoh? Well, while you know old Pharaoh, he chose Joe. Cause he believed that you can't go wrong doing right. It's not so bad being good. You know the world is wishing you would. 
Live a life that demands an explanation. Keeping the truth in your heart will always set you apart. Jehovah will be in your fight. Cause you can't go wrong. No, you can't go wrong doing right. Cause you can't go wrong. No, you can't go wrong doing right. That's the truth. I think she believes it. Amen. All right, the teens are leaving. The rest of us are turning to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, Ezekiel, Ezekiel. It's good to have uh, answered prayer with us again tonight. Good to see Miss Dixie and uh, knowing that we prayed for her and God uh, took care of her. And uh, everything went well there. We sure praise God for that. And uh, it's good to uh, uh, see answered prayer that way. And hopefully uh, the Lord's been working in your life this week, uh, answering some prayers and leading you to serve Him. Hopefully you've been uh, praying for that little country over there in the Middle East called Israel. And uh, remember to pray for them, lift them up before the Lord. God's got a plan. And... Uh, I was doing some studying, and they talked about, uh, it was in the book of Ezekiel, talking about Gaza being destroyed, and so who knows, maybe this will be Gaza getting destroyed, I don't know, um, but it's good to know that we have a great God who knows all that's going on. We don't have to sit here and wring our hands and worry and fret, God's got it, and so thankful for that. Ezekiel, I've entitled this Ezekiel number one, and I hope uh, that we can make some tracks and get through this, although there's a lot of really good stuff in these first three chapters. And so I'm going to take off and you follow along. Uh, let's tell you what, we'll start with a word of prayer. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your goodness to us, for your love to us. I pray that as uh, we consider the first three chapters here tonight, first of all, that we might be able to make it all the way through them. And Lord, that you'd help some stuff stick in our mind, our memory and uh, help us uh, to maybe even do a little further study as we think upon the things that we read here. We thank you uh, for the way that you've interceded on behalf of your nation, Israel, and we pray that you continue to protect it and uh, provide for it, have your will and your way done uh, in its life. And then, Lord, uh, pray that uh, and thank you for answered prayer. It's good to see Miss Dixie here tonight. And uh, good to know that we can lift people up before you and that you answer according to your will. We just trust you with that, and we thank you for it. Go with us tonight, and uh, lead and guide all said and done when I see things in your name. Amen. So, uh, taking Ezekiel 1 through 3 as a unit, uh, it's almost the longest and most in-depth description of a prophet's calling in the Scripture. Uh, the vision uh, Ezekiel had at the time of his call never left him, but influenced his thought continually. It was the knowledge of God, holy, glorious, and sovereign. The prophet does not show a struggle with his feelings, such as is so evident in Jeremiah's life and in Jeremiah's service. Uh, so this begins Ezekiel's description 
of what might be the most unusual and detailed vision of God in the scriptures. And then our good friend, Mr. Feinberg, who wrote a fine uh, series on prophecy and also on the book of Ezekiel, he wrote this, If the message of Isaiah centers about the salvation of the Lord, that of Jeremiah about the judgment of the Lord, and that of Daniel about the kingdom of the Lord, even that of Ezekiel is concerned with the glory of the Lord. I'm afraid we live in a time and uh, maybe we find our time that's around us, but I think we live in a time uh, where we don't stop to really think about how glorious our God is. And so hopefully as we go through the book of Ezekiel here, we'll catch a vision of how glorious our God is and might even push us into a, a closer relationship uh, to recognize the holiness and the goodness of our God. So our first point is this, the vision. The vision. It's the entire first chapter, verses 1 through 28. And Ezekiel receives these visions of the Lord, this, this one big vision, and several pieces of it make it uh, a great vision from God. Uh, we find a great cloud of raging fire engulfing itself. Uh, the whirlwind Ezekiel saw, as we begin in verses 1 through 3, we find a, a great whirlwind. The whirlwind that Ezekiel saw was associated with the great images of God's presence. You'll remember back when the nation of Israel uh, was moving out of, of Egypt and moving towards the promised land, and God said, I'm going to lead you, and I'm going to use a pillar, a, a pillar, a cloud by day and a fire by night. And we see that combined here, these great images of God's presence, the cloud by day and the fire by night was the expressions of God's presence with Israel through the wilderness in Exodus 13, 21 through 22. A raging fire engulfing itself is a reminder of the burning bush that Moses saw, which burned not up, did not consume itself, Exodus 3, 2. One great effect of this vision was to assure Ezekiel that Yahweh was in fact the sovereign God of all creation. No matter how great Babylon and her gods seemed to be, the multiplicity of temples and the incredible prosperity of the city, the hive of industry and culture, all this world had made, uh, and all that, all that was going on, uh, it, it would make a Hebrew feel captive and small, and his homeland very unimportant, and his God less than all the conquering gods of Nebuchadnezzar, and yet... God was God. And so we find as, uh, as uh, Ezekiel was taken from his homeland, moved over to uh, the land of Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar, he, God wanted to remind him that he still served the awesome God of all gods. And so we see uh, letter A, Ezekiel and the cherubim of God. as the first 25 verses. Ezekiel and the cherubim of God. And this kind of reminds me as we begin to talk about the cherubims, I'll just throw it out now. Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read about the throne room of God. And so this is kind of carrying on some connotations of that as we think about the appearance of these beings that we're going to see. And so the first appearance of the living beings in verses 5 through 11, Ezekiel is visited by four of uh, the special beings. Now, what makes them so special? Well, they have four faces. 
on one head. You know, as a younger Christian, it used to really baffle me and bother me when I'd read the Bible and it would go outside my box of thinking. Because what tends to happen is we begin to think that our thinking is the perfect standard. And so every person only has one face, unless they're (laughs) two-faced. Yeah, dad joke, ching, unless they're two-faced. But as the longer that I study Scripture, I realize that my thinking is fallible in comparison to God's thinking. So when I read the Scripture, and it talks about a being with four faces, I need to realize that God's way is not my way. And God's thinking is not my thinking. And that that I think would be awkward and weird in the presence of God is the most perfect of all things. Because he doesn't surround himself with that that is ungodly or unholy or not fitting or not good. Uh, These things in his presence are perfect. And so I have to think outside of my box and realize Heaven's going to be a lot better place than here. And when it talks about a a being with four faces, I can't wait to see it. I don't really know how to describe it. And sometimes I have an issue with trying to just think about it. But I've got to realize that heaven's going to be a lot better than here. And the thinking that I use here is not going to apply there. My thinking then, I think now in part, when I get to heaven, I'm going to think perfectly. And I'm going to think that this four-faced individual is going to be beautiful. Beautiful. Many believe this to be a reference of the children of Israel in the desert with the tabernacle. They had three tribes to the north, three tribes to the south, three tribes to the east, and three to the west. So as the nation of Israel would move, the tabernacle would set in the middle. There'd be three tribes, three tribes, three tribes, and three tribes. And what does that make? A cross. It's all a picture of the New Testament. It's a picture of of, of where it's going. It's going from a blood sacrifice and a nation of Israel. When we get to the New Testament, it's going to be one sacrifice paid forever on behalf of man upon the cross. And so these four faces, and one to the north, south, east, and west. And uh, so as we think about these tribes sitting there, the one closest to the tabernacle had a standard. And uh, those four that were closest to the tabernacle can easily be represented here. Because the face in front of the one to the south side in Numbers 2.10 says, On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben according to their armies. And Reuben had the face of man. On the right side is the lion's face. On the east side, towards the rising of the sun, shall they of the standard of the camp of Judah pitch throughout all their armies. And of course, Judah is known as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then the face on the left <coughs> is the ox face. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim, according to their armies. And their tribe's insignia was that of an ox. And then the, the fourth face, the standard of the camp numbers 225, the standard of the camp of Dan shall be on the north side. And Dan's insignia was an eagle's face. And so we can easily break it out and go, these four faces represent 
uh, the tribes of Israel as they're moving through the wilderness, coming to the promised land. We could very easily make that point. We'll go just a step further with that thought, and that is that these figures represent, the lion represents strength, the ox represents diligent servants, man represents intellect, and the eagle represents divinity. So we could easily say that this is what these faces mean, but to be honest with you, we don't know for sure. The reason we don't know for sure is because the Bible doesn't tell us here. Some scholars say that it's a reference to the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, representing Christ, the King of Judah. Mark, representing Christ as a servant. Luke, representing Christ as the perfect human. And John represents Christ as the Son of God. There's no doubt that this scripture can tie very closely with Revelations chapter 4, uh, Revelations chapter 4, 6 through 8, where we read, And behold, the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes. That kind of freaks me out when I read about that. Four beasts full of eyes. Eh. The first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, the third beast had the face of a man. The fourth beast was like a flying eagle. You say, I don't understand that. Welcome to the group. I don't either. I don't either. I just know what the Bible says. He goes on to describe uh, these individuals, which I believe we can classify as a form of angels. Some have classified them as cherubims, and that I could easily go with that. Uh, in verses 6, 9, and 11, that they, they each have two pairs of wings. And verse number 8 points out that they have human hands beneath these wings. And that each possesses, in verse number 7, each possesses legs like those of men, but their feet are like calves' feet. The vision of God here is one that I'm sure Ezekiel was taken with that undoubtedly God had to give him understanding, although he doesn't fulfill that instruction to us, we're just left knowing that these four beings existed. Now, as we read and study about these in verse number 12 of chapter 1, it says, And they went, everyone, straight forward, whither the Spirit was to go, they went, and they turned not when they went. And so they were following the Spirit. The Spirit was leading them. We find that in verse 17. We find that in verses 20 through 23. They moved straight forward. They could go in all directions without turning. They, they had those, those faces. And so whatever way, they, they could see it. <clears throat> they could see what was going on. Many have likened this unto the omnipresence of God. <clears throat> They glow like bright coals of fire when they move, and it looks as though lightning is flashing among them. So they move very quickly, these four beings. Their movement is swift as lightning. Each is accompanied by a wheel with a second wheel inside. When the beings move, the wheels move with them. Now some have described it as a wheel, with a wheel in the center going this way. 
And so it'd be like wherever it landed, it was still able to go. Or like this could roll north and south, and this wheel would go east and west. Uh, again, I think it speaks of the omnipresence of the Lord, and I've never seen a wheel like that. I've worked on a lot of wheels. I've never worked on wheels like that one before. And these rims of the wheels were filled with eyes, filled with eyes, the all-seeing eye of God. It just kind of reminds me of the fact that I'm never out of God's sight. I'm never away from Him. This has happened over in Israel. God knew about it, and God knows about it. He sees it all. He knew it all before it ever happened. He, he already sees past the end of it. He's the ever-seeing God. Many of them believe, many, many scholars believe it's the omnipresence of God. He hears these heavenly creatures, their wings soar like waves against the shore. In verse number 24, talking about when they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of great waters, as the voice of the Almighty, the voice of speech, as the noise of a host. When they stood, they let down their wings, and there was a voice from the ferment that was over their heads when they stood and let down their wings. And so their wings created this noise as they moved. What we're seeing here is we're seeing a picture, I kind of believe as I've studied this and, and thought about it, I kind of believe we're seeing a, like a four-wheel chariot with a, a cherubim at each corner, at each wheel, was this was a cherubim and then this wheel and then a platform and we find in verses 26 through 28 that there is a likeness and above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it and i saw as the color of amber as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about, as the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud in the rain of day, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord." And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. And so Ezekiel does give us this, that this is the Son of God. This is God on his throne, and he's moving about, and he moves about with great swiftness. I think we need to make sure that we understand that the devil is, is slowed, to only being able to be active where he is, and yet God is everywhere at once. The devil tries to, to appear like that, but he's limited. He is not God. There's only one God. There's only one who can move at the speed and the rate that God moves, and that's God. Satan is limited. Man is limited. God is able to move. He sets upon the throne he moves at his thought process. It said that they moved as lightning. There was a firmament over their head and a likeness of a throne, the appearance of sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above it. His appearance is like a 
glowing ambers surrounded by a rainbow. Now here's where we kind of get a rub with the LGBTQRTXYZ group. As they're trying to steal God's glory. This is God's glory. The rainbow is God's glory. It surrounds his throne. And so the wickedness of man reaches out and they say, we want that. Why? Because they want to be God. They want to be God of their life. They want to choose their options. They want to appease themselves. And so they say, this rainbow is our identification. Trying to steal the glory that belongs to God. It's okay, one day it's all going to be settled. All going to be settled. Do you remember the rainbow was first seen there with, uh, when uh, God brought the rain that covered the earth and, and they were in the ark and they came forth and there was a rainbow and God said he used it as a sign that he would never flood or destroy the earth again until the judgment. With the appearance of a man, it was deeply held tendon of the Israelite religion from Moses onward that God could not be visibly expressed. And for that very reason, idolatry was out. Can you imagine if we could have a complete description of what God looked like here? We don't. We have a very general description. It, matter of fact, it says, as the likeness of a man. You remember back in Genesis, God says, I will make, we will make man in our image. I wonder if that's not the reason so many times that when we think about God, we make him as the presence of a man, but it's not concrete. Remember, we've already seen wheels of eyes and four-faced beings. We do not know exactly what God looks like. There's been examples of theophanies in Scripture, but yet no man has ever seen God and been able to record it. The reason is that there would not be idolatry among men, because that would be the first thing that would happen. They'd make a picture of him, everybody would have to bow down and worship him. Uh, that's why you come into our house, you don't find any Jesus pictures, because no one knew what Jesus looked like, and that long-haired guy that they usually uh, say is Jesus. Uh, yeah. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know what God looks like. The very, uh, and so idolatry is out. And we see it's, God is to be portrayed in a concrete form. The highest symbol that man can use is the human form. When God wanted to reveal himself in the supreme revelation of his person, he did so in the form of a baby, Jesus Christ, who grew to a man. The description suggests that Ezekiel did not see the face and the body, but he could have drawn, but rather... Of a fiery brightness that had a human shape and that he knew to be living and personal. So in the book of Isaiah, we have the principles of the throne of God. In Jeremiah, we have the practice of that throne. But in Ezekiel, we have the person who is on the throne. So we go to verse or chapter number 2, and you can tell by the way that we're moving through this, there's a lot of backstudy that is there for you, okay? Otherwise, if I did a rototiller job right here, we wouldn't get out of chapter one for months and months and months. The voice, 2-1 through 327. 
Ezekiel is called by God to deliver a certain message. And when you think about this message, we understand that there's certain uh, applications. First of all, is the recipients. 2, 1 through 5, and 3, 4 through 7. Who they are, this message is directed to the nation of Israel. That's who is supposed to receive this. He's, they're the recipients. And what they are at the time that this message is sent is they are hard, imprudent, rebellious, and stubborn. Sounds like most people I know in the world today. Hard, imprudent, rebellious, and stubborn. Listen, if we look at our life and we, we measure our life by the Word of God and we find that we are hard, imprudent, rebellious, or stubborn, then we need to say, I need to get right with God. Because those are pictures of a nation in trouble with God. We see the recipients. The next thing we see is the reassurance. This is in 2, 6 through chapter 3 and verse 3, and then verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3. God gives Ezekiel the sermon he needs in 2, 6 through 3, 3. God's words are on a scroll, which he gives Ezekiel to eat. And God then gives Ezekiel the strength he needs. Ezekiel's not afraid to eat this roll that is handed to him. The reflection seen in verses 10 through 11 of chapter 3, before delivering his message, Ezekiel is to allow God's word to sink down deep in his own heart. What a perfect picture here. He says, I want you to take the scroll, I want you to eat it, I want it to sink into you before you give it out to others. It's much the way preachers do today. We take the Word of God, we study the Word of God, we open ourselves to the Word of God, we try to digest the Word of God. And I take the Word of God and I, I apply it over and over and over. I think about it over and over and over. And here for the last month, been thinking on the book of Ezekiel over and over and over, trying to, to get it into me that I might be able to grasp it to be able to give it out to others. Ezekiel's to allow the word of God to sink deep into his own heart. And then we see the reaction in verses 12 through 15, and that is Ezekiel's initial response to all this is one of bitterness and turmoil. However, God's hand is strong upon him. And so Ezekiel, he doesn't respond well to what God wants him to do. He's rebellious about it. He's bitter about it. There's turmoil in his life. And yet God's hand is strong upon him and so we see the role we saw the the recipients the reassurance the reflection the reaction and now the role in chapter 3 16 through 21 ezekiel assumes the role of a spiritual watchman by delivering a twofold warning the first is to the godless chapter 3 16 through 19 cease your wicked ways or die and then to the godly, we find verses 20 and 21. And there we read in verses 20 and 21. Again, when a righteous man doeth, or doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sins. And his righteousness, which he hath done, shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou wilt warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, 
and he doth not sin, he shall surely live because he is warned. Also thou hast delivered thy soul. The importance of preaching the word, of telling the truth, and Ezekiel's responsibility to the godless and then to the godly. That the godly might be turned back to God. That they might have the opportunity to get back on track, to serve God. Have you ever been sitting in a service and you heard the preaching of the word and you think, oh, well, that's good for someone else. That's not really good for me. That's not really needed by me. But then there's times that you sit there and you're like, good night, what did the preacher do? Follow me around all week? Or what's this evangelist in here doing? Did the preacher tell him everything going on in my life? Did my wife send him an email or something? That's just the Spirit of God working in a godly individual saying, look, you need to get back on track. You need to get back. You need to get right with God. You need to walk with God. The righteous way is for the righteous to walk in, not to snub and walk away from. And yet many Christians today, they don't want to be righteous. Matter of fact, I know of Christians that mock other Christians because they do want to be righteous. They mock them of their commitment. They mock them of of the way that they desire to serve God, the, the things that they know to be right. They mock them of that. And the reason that they're mocking them is because they're feeling guilty. And they've decided, you know what, I can serve God on my terms, not God's terms, my terms. And God's word might say this, but I found out I can live like this and get away with it. And yes, you can. But one day, you will stand in the presence of God. And one day, you will answer. And friend, if you're being misled by those who appear to be righteous, but they mock and ridicule the righteousness that you're trying to live at, just go ahead and live at the righteousness that you know God wants you to live at, because you will stand before God, and if you're influenced by that quote-unquote righteous individual to cheapen your righteous or holy walk with God, you will have to give an account of that yourself. We see the restriction in verses 22 through 27. Ezekiel's to imprison himself in his own house where God will temporarily cast him to be, uh, cause him to be unable to speak. And so he's going to be struck dumb. Kind of amazing as we study through Scripture, we see several different times that God did this. You think about uh, John the Baptist's parents, you know, his dad goes up to serve in the, uh, in the uh, uh, temple, and while he's there serving God, the angel appears to him and says, you're going to have a son, and he battles back and forth, and he goes from the temple, and he goes away unable to speak. God made him to be dumb until it comes time to name John, and then his tongue is loose, and all the people are trying to influence him, to name the baby after dad or name the baby after some family name. And he goes, no, his name is to be John. And so Ezekiel is going to be struck dumb. Have you ever thought about what it would be like not to be able to talk? It would probably bring a lot of freedom. Just imagine... I wouldn't have to answer the phone. 
<laughs> I can't talk to them anyhow. Maybe if you could go, you know, like dumb with your fingers, you couldn't type, and so phone would be totally useless to you. What it would do is it would give you more time to think about God. And, and in this situation, I believe it was so that Elijah could think more upon this book, this role that he has eaten, and the responsibility that God has given him to go and to help a nation, to get back on track, to help them to recognize that God is a holy and a righteous God. And the nation around them had been treating God like he's their buddy or treating God like he's just one of many gods. Heaven help us if we ever get away from the fact that we recognize that God is God. And as God, he ought to rule our life. Instead of just trying to make God fit in our box, we need to fit in God's box. You say, well, I don't like that, man. It make me seem weird and awkward. Sounds just like the New Testament. A royal priesthood, a chosen generation. We will be peculiar to a sinful world. And sad to say, even to sinful Christians. Wayward children of God. Backslidden. Those who would draw away the righteous after their own unrighteousness their own selfishness we have a responsibility and i'm excited about the book of ezekiel i'm excited that we made it through three chapters because i didn't think we were going to but we did let's pray lord we love you and we thank you for your goodness and your love to us we thank you for the book of ezekiel what a challenge it's been in my own life what an eye-opening thing to be able to see all these different intricate parts. And yet, God, so much application for where I am in my walk with you. I pray that as we would study through this over the next several weeks, that my, my mind and my heart would be upon what does God want to tell me through this Old Testament book. Just because it's Old Testament doesn't mean it's not relevant, because we know it is. God, why do you want to tell me that I might better serve you? There's ever been a time that Christians need to serve you. It's now, God. And I pray that you'd help me to be faithful, to walk with you and to serve you. I do want to be found pleasing in your sight. I realize that my time here upon this earth is short, and I want to finish the race well. Not worried about what I want, worried about what you would have in my life. Thank you for your goodness and your love. We ask these things in your name. Amen.